welcome everyone for a new installation of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. Um, and this week we are uh, visited by Sasha Engelmann, who's a lecturer in Geo-Humanities at Royal Holloway, University of London. Uh, now we're always like excited to have people visit us, but I guess we're particularly excited to welcome you back, so to speak. Uh, since Sasha was one of the participants in our In the Clouds workshop with Stavanger Art Museum in pretty much exactly two years ago uh, to the day. Um, so, and the outcome of that was this wonderful little book, Silver Linings, that you can buy. Soon you can also download the open access version of it. We just need to get it up. Uh, and it's, it's going to be quite interesting then to hear more about, you know, where you've gone with these ideas that we heard some of at this workshop and like, turned it into a whole book. So I just leave the floor to you. Thank you so much, Finn and uh, Dolly. It's really, I'm very happy and humbled to be giving a seminar for the greenhouse. Um, and I do recall fondly those days in Stavanger um, in 2019, which seems like an age ago, but it was really wonderful to spend some time with you. Um, so I've been, I've been advised to keep this talk relatively informal. So I'm gonna spend around 15 minutes speaking about how my book came to be, um, and then give a little overview of the content of the book. Um, and Dolly also let me know that I should keep my presentation of images um, minimal. So I'm gonna show a few images, uh, which for me is very, very, very few. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this will work to give you a sense of the kind of things and the um, topics at the heart of the book. Um, so to introduce the book a little bit, um, it's called Sensing Art in the Atmosphere, Elemental Lures and Aerosolar Practices. And it really begins with a parable of the skies that I used to gaze at when I was a child, spending summers on the island of Hvar in Croatia, where my maternal family originates. And I used to get lost in the kind of cumulonimbus clouds that would form as a result of a northerly wind called the bura or storm in Croatian. And these clouds would kind of hover over the Croatian mainland, making beautiful shapes and forms before um, dissolving into the winds further south. So as a child growing up on these islands, I was lured by the phenomena of the air. That is to say, I was moved by the unique and mythic elements of the Adriatic Sea. But I was also acutely aware of how the atmosphere was instrumented for geopolitical forces and powers. And although it would take years for me to grasp its lasting implications for landscapes and communities in the region, the remote war in the Balkans that I witnessed produced particular atmospheres in my childhood home, atmospheres that would kind of sharpen into distinct shapes and forms before dissolving as if they had never been. So the notion of elemental lures developed in, in my book is my attempt to kind of describe the process by which we are moved or become viscerally aware of atmospheric space times. Elemental lures are the expressions of atmosphere that attract, unsettle, and reorient us. They are movements, albeit unruly and unpredictable. And to borrow from Alfred North Whitehead, as I do very often in the book, Elemental lures are propositions. They elicit interest, catalyze movement, 
stir the imagination and otherwise arrange bodies, entities, and matters into novel configurations. Now, while the inspiration for um, elemental lores originates in my childhood, the majority of the book really threads this notion through experiences I have had collaborating with artists and activists over the past six years. So I found a lot of uh, conceptual resources while practicing collaborating and thinking with artists who are invested in air and atmosphere. And so in order to kind of open up this ecology of practices, I'm gonna begin by saying a few words about how this research took shape before giving uh, a bit more detail on the three currents of the aerosolar arts that feature in my, in my book. So this research began really uh, in the studio of Tomas Saracino in Berlin, um, where I spent three years as an ethnographer. Um, studio Saracino was established by Tomas Saracino in Frankfurt in 2005. And over time, it has grown into a multidisciplinary practice focused on the structures and poetics of clouds, the webbed worlds of spiders, and more generally the design um, of ecologies for living and moving on and above the earth. And by chance, I met Emek Uluse, who was a core member of Studio Saracino at a symposium on Saracino's installation on space-time foam in the Hangar Bicocca in Milan in 2000 and 14, 13, and then was invited to the, to the studio as its first doctoral researcher in, in 2014. Um, so it, it came about by chance, as many things do. Um, but at Studio Thomas Saracino, I was really introduced to a lively, what I call ecology of practices after Isabel Stengers, involving the production of artworks, exhibitions, publications, and pedagogies. So I witnessed members of the studio carry out experiments with South American spider species, Riemannian geometries and stratospheric balloons. Um, and my planned three month field visit extended longer and longer and longer. Um, and I ended up spending three and a half, almost four years um, collaborating with Tomas and the many practitioners in his studio which numbered around 20 when I arrived and around 50 when I left, while spider populations increased to the thousands. I think there are now around 80 or 90 people that work for Thomas Saracino. Um, so this is, a, this is a very, very large contemporary art studio. And I was kind of there as it grew um, into its much larger form. So out of these years of collaboration, I became an active member in three artistic and activist communities initiated by Studio Saracino, but really reaching across countries, continents, and atmospheric layers. And these projects are called Museo Aerosolar, Becoming Aerosolar, and Aerocene. And they are really the primary artistic and activist networks with which I engage in my uh, book. Okay, so here you will permit, permit me to show some images, um, I hope. Uh, one moment. Um, so I think you're all seeing an image of a balloon-like launch, correct? Uh, okay, thanks. So in Museum Aerosolar, Becoming Aerosolar and Aerosene, practitioners make launch and fly solar-powered balloon-like sculptures in order to query the intersections between global aeromobility, 
fossil fuel extraction and advanced capitalism. So these are networks of people around the world who are launching these balloon-like sculptures into the atmosphere and tracking how far they can float without using any fossil fuel, helium or hydrogen gas. And Museo Aerosolar is the oldest of these initiatives established in 2007 by Thomas Serestino and Alberto Pesavento. And it really evolved as a community as well as a collectively fabricated aerosolar sculpture composed only of reused plastic shopping bags that are cut into rectangular shapes and connected into a membrane to be inflated with air and to, uh, and to absorb solar energy. True to its name, Museo Aerosolar is a flying museum, as well as a kind of archive of plastic matter, consumption patterns, and urban ecologies. As the composition and character of Museo Aerosolar shifted, um, uh, another aerosolar project uh, kind of gained uh, shape. Um, so taking form in a range of projects, sculptures and collaborative writings, a project called Becoming Aerosolar was developed at the Institute for Architektur Bezogene Kunst um, at the Technical University of Braunschweig where Thomas Saracino served as director for two years and I served as a kind of lecturer along with several other members of staff. Um, and so this particular project called Becoming Aerosolar really borrowed from Museo Aerosolar, but it was distinct in the way it functioned in kind of pedagogical spaces and in the kinds of ideas um, driving it, uh, which I can talk about later if you're interested. Um, and then the Aerocene project um, with which, uh, in, in which I am most uh, entangled as both a researcher and a practitioner. So this was um, initiated in 2015 by Thomas Saracino, um, with the launch of the first fully certified human carrying solar balloon, the, the DOAEC Aerosene, which was launched at the White Sands National Monument in New Mexico. Um, while it was launched by Thomas Saracino Studio in, in 2015, it has very much since grown beyond the studio um, and reached into many other communities and spaces. Um, so it is definitely no longer um, uh, reducible to Thomas Saracino's studio. Um, so in the past years alone, Aerocene sculptures have featured in um, excursions over the Italian Alps, um, environmental justice campaigns in Buenos Aires, I'm very much involved in this, um, Fridays for Future protests in various places around the world, um, in a third year geography course, I teach at Royal Holloway called Atmospheres, Nature, Culture, Politics. Um, and crucial to these practices or, or crucial, to, crucial to the Aerocene community are careful processes of fabrication, preparation and launch of Aerocene sculptures. Um, each performance of Aerocene is an exercise first in attuned sensitivity to the elemental and cosmic dimensions of Earth's atmosphere. And second, a kind of political gesture in decarbonizing and decolonizing the air. Okay, so um, that was a uh, kind of introduction to Aerocene, becoming Aerosolar and Museerosolar. And to kind of build a little bit on this point about decarbonizing and decolonizing the air, um, so in recent years, um, Aerocene has worked with scientists at MIT, for example, to produce what is called the Aerocene float predictor, 
which is a kind of web-based app or tool that enables you to put in your location, your desired destination, choose your altitude, and then navigate using only solar energy and wind power. Um, so it's a kind of speculative tool to imagine what movement would look like in the atmosphere if it was not tied to heavier than air fuel burning passenger planes. And then actually on this day, exactly one year ago, um, there was a, a launch called Fly with Aerosene Pacha led by Thomas Saraceno, um, part of a global art initiative called Connect BTS, supported by the Korean pop band BTS or the Bangtan Boys. Uh, I can talk about that relationship later. Um, so in Jujuy in Argentina, the Aerosene Pacha team actually achieved um, the first ever fully autonomous air travel with the DOAC Aerosene sculpture, piloted by a school teacher named Leticia Marquez. Um, so this was a launch of a human carrying sculpture where there were no ropes tethering the human or the balloon to the ground. So it was fully kind of free. Um, and it was the first time that that had really happened. Um, and in solidarity with indigenous communities from Tres Pozos, Pozo Colorado and Intiquila, the sculpture carried a collectively written message that read, el agua y la vida valen más que litio or water and life are worth more than lithium. So the action has since sparked a growing, albeit unusual coalition between local environmental activists, BTS fans in Argentina and aerosene practitioners in the region. Um, okay, so that was my brief intro into the kind of context or ecology of the book um, that emerged from a kind of multi-year ethnography again, in which I participated in the stories and the growth of these three artistic and activist um, projects. Now, empirically, um, sensing art in the atmosphere is full of stories from these experiments um, of my friends and colleagues in solar lighter than air, or we say aerosolar floating. And these stories help me to bring together multiple senses of atmosphere from the material to the political uh, to the affective. And they also help me to develop a notion of elemental lures, right? To account for the various ways in which elemental phenomena proposition us toward different forms of being, sensing, and becoming. So for example, in the book, I tell stories about traveling to the Salar Dujuni at the top of the Bolivian Andes with Thomas Saraceno and a kind of team of people on a mission to launch aerosene sculptures over the perfect mirror of the Salt Lake in 2016. And this lake fills up with only a few centimeters of water during the rainy season. And this water rests on a kind of bed of salt rich, um, almost crystalline soil. So when you're in the middle of the lake, the kind of sky extends all around you, right? But also the reflection of light off the surface of this tiny amount of water um, makes for excellent launch conditions for aerosene and aerosolar sculptures. Um, I also tell stories again of teaching aerosolar sculpture design and making in an ex-cement factory building surrounded by bunkers in the North German forest, two hours from Berlin. And these workshops which with um, students would often turn into kind of marathon all day, all night sessions. And it would culminate in like a dawn launch at a field nearby. So this was like the classroom extending far beyond like the working day. Um, but it really generated a lot of like interesting questions and propositions for me. 
Um, in the book, I also center the stories and voices of collaborators, students, and members of aerosolar communities. So it was very important to me that my book includes many references to unpublished sources, to making sessions, to the messy spaces of planning and experimentation, right? Um, it's important to me that the book kind of holds on to this, the circuitous ways in which ideas percolated and then faded, uh, concepts tested and then kind of failed, right? Um, I spend a whole chapter in chapter three telling stories of failed aerosolar launches in order to kind of talk about the interesting forms of perception that emerge in the process. Um, okay, so then quickly now I'm, I'm going to wrap up in the kind of, to give a kind of structure or uh, overview of the book. Um, in each of the core chapters, I then engage with different kinds of elemental lures and I trace how they enlarge perceptions, spark imaginaries, and move communities and bodies, and otherwise like shift subjects into elementally engaged practice and politics. So in particular, the, the second chapter explores the, the elemental lures of shared atmospheres. Um, and more specifically, I demonstrate that the collectively fabricated sculpture Museo Aerosolar conjures atmospheres that connect bodies to each other and to their elemental circumstances. And I kind of talk about how the project is also kind of instrumented for different uh, political struggles and aims um, in, in different sites. The third chapter then engages with the elemental lures of wind and weather. So I explore the kind of heightened perceptions of atmospheres and weather patterns that are informed by the fabrication and launch of aerosolar sculptures um, in Becoming Aerosolar. Um, I explore also a kind of orientation to air that is not about distanced observation, but about interrogating the air for its simultaneous physical, social, and political qualities. The fourth chapter um, then moves into a much larger scale. So that, that one examines the elemental lures of transboundary air movements and regulated airspace. So to do that, I've kind of followed the nomadic journey of the Aerocene Gemini, which was one um, kind of two-part sculpture um, launched in summer 2016. Um, and it was launched from Berlin and it flew all the way to Poland, uh, reaching 16,000 meters in altitude. Um, and in this long distance flight of the sculpture, bodies feel transboundary air currents that are far vaster and far larger than our everyday experience normally allows. Um, however, I argue following Sarah Ahmed that these experiences also weigh and press upon bodies in different ways. And I kind of make some comments about the community politics of Erosine based on that um, observation. Um, the fifth chapter, which actually a fragment of this appears in the Silver Linings catalog. So the fifth chapter explores um, elemental lures of clouds and solar light by examining recent launches of the human piloted aerosolar sculpture, the DOAEC Aerosine. And I show how with the resources of figuration, metaphor and allegory, floating bodies become clouds, sculptures become irradiated planets, and cloud formations become floating communities. In other words, these floating performances enlarge and expand our imaginaries of atmosphere in ways that are both surreal and surprising. Um, and I use my own experience um, of floating on the DOAEC Aerosene sculpture in 2018 to kind of elaborate on this, on this point. 
And then finally, in the concluding and sixth chapter, I kind of thread together the insights of the previous chapters to propose what a focus on lures can offer elemental aesthetics and politics. Um, and then I make a call for what I call the elemental geohumanities, a body of thought and practice spanning geography and the arts and humanities in which elemental materials, histories, and media are the focus of experiment and critique. So in my view, the geohumanities um, approaches to the elements can really further the ongoing project of unsettling geography's material imaginary. Um, so the elemental geohumanities can more forcibly critique the taken for granted material ontologies and metaphysics of geography and can do so through a capacious attention to elemental media from chemical units to alchemies to elemental phases. I also find that the kind of information allowed in by artistic practices in the geohumanities has particular relevance in, in relation to the elemental because the elements are not abstract categories, right? They are personal and political. So in the geohumanities, we, we might therefore foreground accounts of the elements that demonstrate how they inform social and political worlds. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sasha. That was a great introduction to this really exciting book. Um, and one of the things that, uh, yeah, I mean, I was thinking a lot of things, but one thing that struck me was how the um, first Aerocene launch then was at White Sands. Um, I grew up near White Sands, actually, in El Paso. So I went regularly to White wow. Sands. Um, and what's interesting, I think, to think about in that context is then the political context of White Sands um, in that it's, it's there that you have some of the major um, developments in nuclear weaponry that come out yeah. of White Sands that are tested in White Sands. So I was yeah. wondering how you think about those kind of political ties of, of place and of element, right? I mean, Actually, yeah. nothing more elemental than what we do to, um, you know, atoms <laughs> in, in making nuclear uh, weapons. Yeah, thank you so much for that question, Dolly. And um, yes, yeah, so actually in, in chapter five in the book, I do think about like the specificity of White Sands as a place for the first DOAC aerosene launch. Um, and I do so in several ways. So first I look at the kind of history of solar balloon experiments there. So this is not only a landscape where of course the first um, atomic weapons were tested. It's also been a home to, for like um, ground to orbital programs. So things like Virgin Galactic, things like SpaceX, um, NASA, right? Had a kind of field there. So this is a kind of white sandy desert landscape that has seen many experiments in achieving um, different kinds of, let's say, techno-utopian uh, uh, projects. Um, and so um, I think what's often missing a little bit, honestly, from accounts of Aerocene is how Aerocene is not a radical departure um, from either like movement in the air or from histories of art. But actually, you can look at the history of solar ballooning and the history of different kinds of experiments, especially at White Sands, and draw a lineage uh, back in time. Um, so there was an amazing um, 
inventor from Iran called Frederick Eshu, who um, launched a solar balloon called the Sunstat in the White Sands National Monument in 1978. Um, and this Sunstat balloon had like, um, it looked very much like the aerostein sculpture I showed you, but it also had a transparent panel on one side um, so he was able to rotate the balloon and when the transparent panel was facing to the sun, because of the qualities of that um, material, the balloon would like slightly dip in altitude and when the black surface was facing the sun, it would slightly go up. So anyway, I'm just giving that as an, as an example of the kinds of things that have been specifically done in white sands to do with solar ballooning and aerosolar flight. Um, also in the book though, I do think a lot about like, you know, thinking with people like Elizabeth DeLowry, um, allegories of the Anthropocene, um, thinking about how um, the kind of images and imaginaries produced by Erosine um, play into certain kinds of image matrices or holograms or um, kind of, yeah, sets of images that are very commonly located in places like White Sands. Um, uh, I, I also think about, again, the quality of the sand there. So the, 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 the sand grains as being, um, uh, having these irradiated qualities, uh, right? Um, but then I also think about the human body as an irradiated thing. Um, as we know, especially from um, books like um, Elizabeth DeLowry's book, um, of course, we all carry in our, in our bones, in our, in our blood, the signatures of the atomic tests, especially the results of the atmospheric tests over Bikini Atoll in the 1950s, right? So we are all kind of uh, radiant beings. Um, so I kind of, um, without you know, talking for too long, I kind of unpack, let's say, both the historical lineage of, of, uh, white, of white sands, um, but also like use the sand itself to kind of think through what other kinds of histories and elemental processes and politics are really embedded there. Um, also, just to, I don't know if this is uh, useful, but I, um, I have a, another article coming out in Theory, Culture, and Society called Elemental Memory um, that will come out in a couple months, I think. And, it's, and that is specifically in, um, uh, an article about the elemental memory of the sand at White Sands. Oh, that's just fabulous. Um, so interesting. As having grown up there and, and, you know, gone to the sands and walked around and um, you do sliding <laughs> on the sand and, and this, um, yeah, this place. And as you're saying, you know, with the, the, all of the ties to space industry, as well as defense industry there, Alamogordo, um, and, and thinking about that. So that's just great. Um, Aster, you have a question. I will unmute you. Thanks, Ollie. Hi, Sasha. I, uh, I've been so, I've been waiting for your book to come out. I've been so excited for it. I, um, I wrote my master's thesis trying to develop something called elemental aesthetics or a concept like it. And your work has just been super inspiring. So it's really nice to hear you talk and to meet you. Um, and I had a question uh, about maybe a more of like a pragmatic question or even a question to ask at the end of something like this, but it struck me how, um, how long you have been involved in your object of analysis basically, or your practice of analysis. And that made me very curious about 
what do you do after this? Like after having been engaged in a project that is so long, um, how do you, where does this take you? Like, where are you going now? And how do you go about that? Um, first, Aster, thank you for your kind words. I'm so humbled um, by what you've said about my work. Um, and I'm so happy that it's been useful for you um, in some small way. So thank you for those words. Um, I think you're right. And I think that's a, that's a question I've been grappling with, um, sort of what, what next and where to go now. And um, I should say that um, my involvement with Aerocene will continue. Um, I'm very, very much still involved with the community and trying to shape it um, in, in different ways and to see it grow in different ways that it hasn't already. Um, so uh, in many ways, that is still a thread of my work that I'm just trying to bring maybe other questions to. So one project I'm working on right now is cited in um, a, shanty, a shanty town called Vija Inflamable, or the flammable town in um, South Buenos Aires in Argentina. Um, and in that project, I'm working with um, a bunch of earth scientists, a bunch of air quality scientists, community planners, the residents of the shantytown, Aerocene, um, the Buenos Aires Arduino School, so like a, a kind of group of like hackers um, and some students. And we're really trying to um, build or prototype an air quality sensing platform that could be attached to Aerocene sculptures um, and could measure vertical transects of air pollution in the town. Um, uh, and so it's a project that is a kind of, um, it's a multidisciplinary approach to measuring air quality, if you, if you will. It's kind of asking the question also, what can artistic practice and also actually feminist theory um, offer and add to air quality uh, concerns? Um, and so um, that's very exciting. And that again is, I guess, building on my work with Aerocene, but um, taking it into a different direction. Um, and um, I had plans to go to Argentina this year, actually, with a, with a grant, and that didn't work out. So that was really sad. But yeah, I wanted to share with you another project that I'm super excited about, um, which is called Open Weather. And Aster, it is a project that emerged with a collaborator of mine called Sophie Dyer. I'm popping a link in the chat. Um, and basically, we are... Um, uh, kind of drawing on again the kind of past work I've done around relationships to uh, you know between bodies atmospheres and weather systems but now rather than solar balloons I'm using transmissions from meteorological satellites um, so we're building a kind of community around DIY satellite image decoding and we're using the raw materials from weather satellites to do performances to do workshops to do kind of making sessions um, and it's called open weather. Um, so in that sense, I think I'm, um, I'm still, again, working on the elemental and working on atmospheres, but um, almost doing what Aerocene did in relation to, to um, solar balloons, but now taking that into another kind of hybrid technical artistic uh, direction. Um, and I can say more about open weather, but I know others probably have questions. I'm, um, I'm also very excited about open weather because whereas with Aerocene, I, you know, I was sort of um, around when Aerocene was founded and was very much part of that story. 
with Open Weather. And that's a project that I very much have founded um, and that I'm kind of growing using my experience of Aerocene and using my experience also of like, how do you build a community in an ethical way? And how do you sustain a community um, around these kinds of practices? So we're doing things like publishing um, the Open Weather Feminist Handbook um, last winter, which is a kind of um, a, a kind of hand a handbook that distills the feminist principles at the heart of the weather sensing work in open weather. If that makes sense. Um, but anyway, yeah. So basically, it's it's. I think it's all about like thinking through what what are the questions and the materials and the politics that you have a stake in, probably. And then I think things just happen uh, naturally afterward. Um, Sorry for that very long-winded. No, that was a that was a great answer um, because I think it's something that in environmental humanities, what we see in general is that this is how people operate, right? They, they figure out where where they believe they have a stake and and where they can contribute uh, to to making a difference. I I don't think any of us are in this business who think that there's nothing we can contribute. Um, so, and and it's great that your background is is artistic weather um, on your thing because you're showing actually how um, weather is both material, but it's also aesthetic. Um, and so in both, um, but really related to this, but a, another kind of track is Heidi's question. Um, which is what what advice do you have for coordinating a project with tentacles in several countries so here in, and you've just talked about the fact that you're involved in uh, and the Saraceno you know uh, lab being in Germany and in you know Argentina and doing you know installations in this place and that place across the world. So um, Heidi says she's working with several artists and activists on a climate grief project who are based then in a bunch of different places, um, Copenhagen and New York and Salt Lake City. And, you know, how do you deal with the messiness and, and bring it forward as it sounds like you have in this book? Yeah, thanks for that question, Heidi. And it's, it's never easy, is it? Uh, working across countries, languages, disciplines, um, you know, it's really, it, it can get quite messy and it often does. And I, I will just caveat this answer by saying that I do not have like a golden rule or kind of wisdom for you. Um, but what I, what I can say is that um, I have learned, um, yeah, I've, I've learned a lot about, um, uh, a few things. Okay, I've 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 learned a lot about um, making almost a ritual out of meetings, um, making a ritual out of like sharing space and hosting space together, even if that space is a Zoom meeting or an online space. Um, um, I found that when space is not hosted or space is not made, whether that's um, to discuss a project development or just to kind of like hang out, I think there can breed more conflicts and struggles than otherwise. So it's a little bit about, about like kind of making the time to hold those kinds of spaces. Um, but I've also found a lot of resources in a, in a kind of movement and a book um, called Design Justice. So I'm not sure if you've heard about the Design Justice movement or network, 
Um, but there is a fantastic book that I usually have on my desk, which I don't have now, but um, it's, it's by uh, a, a professor at MIT called Sasha Costanza Chalk. Um, and in this book, they really write a lot about um, like tactics and strategies for enabling work, especially with communities to work out. Um, so one thing I borrowed from that book, for example, is the idea of a memo of understanding. So I'm right now working on this kind of memo of understanding between uh, myself uh, as an academic, the other researchers who I work with at Royal Holloway, um, the residents of Vija Inflamable, the Aerocene community, and the kind of um, urban planners that I'm involved in in uh, Buenos Aires. Um, and I think it's been amazing because if you have some common document or memo or kind of tactical tool to look at together and think about, okay, what is my responsibility? What is my role here? What am I invested in? What is my stake in this project? And what do I kind of commit to doing? Um, then it becomes a kind of basis for turning to when there are issues or when there's miscommunication, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I do recommend the design justice network and principles. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think, um, I think also there's something about when things get messy and conflicts happen, um, sitting in the fire. Does that make sense? Like staying with the heat, being in the glare, like that's okay. You know, when things get hot, that's actually fine. And that's part of community-based work. And I know when I first did this, I got quite uh, perturbed by the heat. And especially in Thomas Thurston's studio, when things would get really heated, I was quite affected by that. But over the years, I've learned to kind of look at that glare as part of the process of arriving somewhere together. Um, and I think in that process, it's really all about um, like seeing others and acknowledging others and being like, I see you and I see your position. Even if I don't, even, even if I don't like um, agree with that position, I kind of see you. Um, does that help Heidi? So uh, I wanted to follow up with a question um, to come back to something you mentioned earlier. So because you've talked about uh, in a way the, well, the elemental lure, but there's also some, some kind of material attunement going on here. And I think there's a, there's a very interesting progression then from these early projects uh, with the, the recycled plastic bag uh, sculpture to these sleek black high-tech looking uh, sculptures of the Aerosene project. So, I mean, could you say something more about that development there? I mean, obviously there's a, you know, a functional explanation. Yes, I'm, I'm sure they fly a lot better, uh, the, the black ones, but is there, is there something more? What was the, the thought process in, in this uh, development? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, I would not say the sleek black balloons are better or worse than the plastic balloons. I think it's all about what the intention is with the sculpture. So um, it's, uh, it's quite amazing that with only reused plastic shopping bags and some tape um, and some understanding about solar balloon design, one can create an envelope that can fly only with the sun. And in fact, in many occasions has even lifted people um, off the surface of the earth. So um, when, I, when I first came to Thomas Aristino's studio, 
um, a lot of the initial uh, questions I was involved with were, were about um, how to be very economical with materials and how to, how to generate something that could be shared as easily as possible with as many communities as possible. Um, and so in that, in that sense, if you're, if you're thinking about um, a kind of tactic or a material process that can be shared, um, then Museo Aerosolar is the, the best of the suite of aerosolar projects. Um, um, but, I, but I think it was very interesting also to me to see from, I mean, Thomas has decades and decades of expertise in thinking about solar lighter than air sculpture, right? So since like the 90s, he was already working on this. Um, but it was very interesting for me to see also how there was a residency that we, we did with CNES, the French Space Agency. And in that residency, we learned a lot about the CNES um, stratospheric balloons who are who, who's, who's, whose name are the Montgolfier infrared balloons. Um, and so there was a lot of learnings that came out of actually like engaging with space science um, that then informed the Aerocene project. So I kind of write in my PhD, for example, about the porosity between um, scientific institutions um, and the studio. Um, and I think, um, yeah, with the kind of sleek Aerocene sculptures, it's not only about the sleekness. Um, so I think there's, yeah, sometimes the images do a bit of a disservice to the project because the images produced by the studio are super sleek and super spectacular, but actually the launching and the kind of material uh, process and experience of launching an aerosine sculpture um, is very DIY, is very messy. There's mud everywhere, um, things tear. You have to tie the right knot on the payload, otherwise the whole thing will fly off. Like there's, uh, we use like a plastic water bottle to hold the Raspberry Pi that has a camera on it and that can often break. And so it's like, there, it actually is quite fragile um, too. And, um, but I think one, one important point about the kind of aerosine kind of typical black balloon that was very important was that that also became a kind of kit. So um, we were producing these um, aerosine sculpture float kits where you would get a kind of backpack and in the backpack was an aerosine sculpture, um, tethers, white gloves, a manual, the payload, the Raspberry Pi and everything that you would need to kind of conduct an experiment with the sculpture. Um, yeah, thanks for that question. Great. Um, Christine, you have a question for Sasha, if you'd like to ask that. Thank you very much, Sasha, um, for the very interesting talk. I'm looking forward to reading your book. And um, I've been engaging with some of your work in the context of a project I'm working on in the Chernobyl exclusion zone specifically looking at how wildfires there are re-releasing radioactive particles into the atmosphere and how that's then distributed by smoke. But one of the things that's come out of thinking about this has been about the effective atmospheres of not knowing whether it's radioactive smoke or not. Mm. And that then has led to thinking about, well, what does it mean to have smoke, something that's tangible? And that kind of led me to thinking about when you were talking about plastic. So I was particularly struck by this, the um, big balloon made of lots and lots of little plastic bags. 
um, but that's in itself, that's a polluting material in itself that's being then re-released into the atmosphere. And so there's some fascinating links between the actual atmosphere, the, uh, the effect of atmospheres, not just of the materials, but also the art of creating. So the art of being the artist or the academic who's engaging with this but also, hopefully also for the reader and the person who's then seeing the results of the tests that are being made. So I wondered if you could reflect a bit more about the effective atmospheres of your work. Wow, what a wonderful question. Thank you so much, Christine. And I also wanna know more about your work about radioactive particles and smoke in the Chernobyl zone. Um, Yes, so um, the um, one thing I would preface this comment with is that um, it is true that plastic is a polluting material. Um, however, um, the aim of using plastic in Museo Aerosolar is also to kind of keep it there. So um, the sculpture is not let go uh, and lost, it's always retrieved. Um, and that's important so that, so there's one Museo Aerosolar sculpture called, um, that we call the mother actually, um, which has traveled to something like 20 countries. And in each site, there was a new piece added to the sculpture. Um, and you can actually see this when you're inside the sculpture, you can see the different like languages and brands and symbols that come from different countries uh, where the sculpture has traveled. Um, so. In that, in that sense, it's almost an attempt to conserve plastic or to kind of keep plastic somewhere rather than letting it go. Um, but in terms of the affective atmospheres of these sorts of experiments, that is, I mean, that's why I really love this work. That, that I mean, that at, at its kind of core is why I got hooked. Um, and, and really there's, I mean, in the, in the book, especially in chapter two, I talk a lot about, the affective atmospheres of the making process. So what happens um, when you're kneeling on the membrane um, often for hours at a time and you're brandishing tape and you're kind of cutting plastic bags and you're talking about like what you're doing but you're actually also talking about um, you know the histories of the plastic bags and you're kind of noticing things about the membrane and you're kind of sharing stories with each other um, and there's a particular kind of let's say concentrated atmosphere that happens in the making process but it's also about imagining um, like what could be, like what is this thing that you're making? Um, um, and there's also kind of, I mean, as, as many, many scholars have written, whether it's about knitting, whether it's about other kinds of craft, um, you know, the kind of labor of making facilitates kind of desires and exchanges. Um, and that was really something that I have always seen in every workshop, whether it was in Paris, South America, London. Um, Okay, so there's a kind of maybe an also like an anticipatory sense in those in those stages. Then when the sculpture is tested, so when it's uh, first inflated with air, often this happens just by running and filling it with the normal air. Um, other times it happens by using a fan to blow air into the structure. Um, and all of a sudden this thing takes shape. 
And that like dramatically and palpably changes the atmospheres of the workshop or the session. So we have people who like um, are kind of experiencing this form for the first time as a form and it really becomes kind of like a living creature. So the way it moves with like the vortices and the wind and the kind of curves of air is really creature-like. Um, so people begin to like react to the sculpture in different ways and like touch it and like fix stuff and like caress it and like make sure it's fine. And like, of course, this is also uh, wrapped up in speculation about, okay, is it large enough to fly? Like, is the surface area good enough? Is it like structurally sound? Like if it was on a windy field, would it hold together, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, um, the perhaps the most affective part of this process is when you take it to a field and you're inflating it with air um, and the sculpture again, you know, it kind of becomes like an affective radiating uh, form. It kind of radiates affect, right? And the kind of non-human um, affective force fields that someone like James Ash has written about um, or, you know, thinking about like J um, Jane Bennett's idea of uh, thing power. Um, and, and then you have this moment where people are, you know, in this kind of rather tense, tense moment before like the thing is launched and like everybody's kind of checking it again and like tying the payload and like holding onto the tethers and and then at one moment you have to make this decision about like of course what can always disrupt a launch is the weather so if the weather is not good enough if the wind is especially the wind if the wind is too strong you're you know it's never going to happen um so there's this moment of kind of judgment about like, is the atmosphere collaborating? Like to what extent can we let this thing go? And there's like a lot of like discussion about this. Um, and then somebody in the end has to run with the tether and like run with the sculpture down the field and then like release it into the air at the right moment, which actually I had to do on one occasion um, in Braunschweig, which I will never forget. And, um, and then it, and then it goes. And then I think what I also do in my book is, is, is like think about you know, um, as this entity that you were so familiarized with, you were so intimate with this form in the workshop, you were like kneeling on the membrane and like treating it like a, like a creature and then it, and then it's gone. Right. Um, so what kinds of, um, let's say investments or what kinds of like lures remain with those on the ground? Um, and that's what I talk about in my fourth chapter where I follow the nomadic journey of the Aerosene Gemini. And I really think about, not only the affective atmospheres of the launch, but what happens after the thing is no longer visible. Like what happens when it's only a icon of a balloon on an APRS radio map of Europe? Um, and so, yeah, there's there's really a lot about affect in the in the book. Um, and I I would also love to hear your thoughts on it if you have a moment to read it. Well, that's great. Um, I know Heather here had a, a question about legal procedure and air clearance. Um, right. And so, and which kind of follows on exactly uh, with what you were just talking about, right? It turns into a blip on a map, but there are some legal things about that. Heather, do you want to ask that question? Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty boring procedural question, but that's part of the work is it's almost a procedural artwork as well. Um, I'm thinking of Nin Bruderman's 12 o'clock London project, which involved launching weather balloons and, and she often had to get clearance from aviation and 
the Air Force and stuff um, in order to launch that. So I'm wondering about the legality and clearance getting NIS, or did people just kind of not do that? Which is um, fine too. <laughs> yeah, Heather, that is like the least boring question ever, actually, because we think so much about this in Aerocene. And um, I would, if you don't mind, like putting a link to the artist and the work that you just mentioned, I would really appreciate it because I actually didn't recognize that, that work. So if you wouldn't mind dropping that in the chat, I would really appreciate. Um, but um, yeah, so um, we go through a very complex procedure of getting permission for every aerosolar launch. Um, there are different um, legal procedures that stand for if you're just gonna launch something on a tether, um, if you're gonna launch something into the atmosphere, that's a totally different thing, right? Um, so for every launch, um, we um, have to think through this thing. Now, in terms of a free flight, um, that's a bit more complex. And what that requires is um, there are certain specifications about the weight of the sculpture. And if the sculpture surpasses a given weight, um, that's not good because then that means it is subject to even more stringent laws and rules. So we generally have to keep the sculptures under four kilograms in order to be um, within a lighter than air legal framework. Um, we also have to give a radio call sign to the sculpture. So um, usually there's a radio amateur who attaches his or her call sign to the sculpture. Um, and that radio call sign helps to track the sculpture on what's called the automatic position reporting system map, which is a map shared by uh, amateurs and, of, and also um, air traffic control um, institutions, which tracks flying objects. Um, in addition, every sculpture has to have a reflector. So it has to have a like, like a dangly uh, cardboard shape, which is covered in like aluminum foil or something like really like kind of glary. Um, and that is again, so that air traffic control can um, better like see or sense the sculpture as it's flying. Now, I find this so fascinating, not because of the processes and the legal frameworks that are involved in, in like, you know, uh, gaining access to the atmosphere, but it's also a question of, you know, who or what is allowed to access the air, who or what is allowed to fly. And that question is so fascinating to me. Um, I've also done some research on, you know, um, can air traffic control actually see a flying aerosene sculpture? Because some amateurs tell me, no, they can't because um, if you think about an aerosene sculpture, it's a black body filled with hot air. Air traffic control um, uses like filters, which are called moving target indicators to actually filter out noise in the atmosphere, to filter out insects, to filter out clouds, to filter out like birds, right? So my uh, deduction after much research is that actually Air traffic control cannot see an aerosene sculpture with its primary radar systems because for radar, an aerosene sculpture is the same as a small cloud. It's a, it's a body of warm air and it's also black. Um, uh, and aerosene sculptures are not, uh, because of their weight, they're not mandated to carry what's called a transponder, um, which is needed if you surpass a certain weight. And a transponder, so we know that when like, 
um, a, a Russian plane entered UK airspace in 2014 and it turned off its transponder, it was not noticed by air traffic control. So if a Russian plane that simply does not have a transponder turned on can go unnoticed through air traffic control systems, I, I think aerosine sculptures frequently do. So anyway, there's a lot of, I think kind of interesting questions about not just like, again, like legality and um, procedure, but um, what are the kind of infrastructures of sensing um, that are involved in this? Who is sensing? Why are they sensing? Um, and I think, I think aerosine sculptures kind of slip in between the interstices of air traffic control. Yep, I agree. It's not a boring question at all. Uh, I suspect <laughs> yeah. we could talk a lot longer about it too, but our time is up, so we, we do need to wrap up now. Uh, so I just want to thank you, Sasha, for, uh, for coming to talk about your book uh, and also to all the people in the audience. So thank you very much.